You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Hey guys and gals, welcome to the Oklahoma Outdoors podcast brought to you by Arrowhead Land Company. Here you will be educated, entertained, and equipped to get more out of your outdoor experience. So hold on tight because here we go. What's up, folks? Welcome to the Oklahoma Outdoors podcast. And just before I hit record here, I had a huge realization. This is the last episode that will come out before deer season. That's right. By the time I'm recording my next episode, deer season will have started. I will have probably gone deer hunting, hopefully, cross my fingers. And and we're here, guys. We made it. Deer season is here. Hunting season is here in general. Uh, I believe teal season's open right now. Dove's already been open. It's it's just, it's that time, guys. It is the time we live for all year long. Hunting season is here. So I think we have a very awesome episode uh, this week, and it timed out perfectly. I, I kind of did it on purpose, kind of not. I didn't realize how perfectly I timed this one out, uh, but it's just going to be me today. I hope you guys are all right with that. Um, I have a big list of notes sitting in front of me. I talked about this a little bit last week, and uh, I'm just going to cover some things that I have basically learned throughout the last uh, year. It's been things that uh, I've learned through experience, things I've learned from other people. A lot of it actually is things I've learned from other people. And uh, if most of the stuff we cover on this ep- on, or uh, excuse me on this podcast is like Deer 101. This one's going to be a little bit more Deer 201, like not crazy, crazy high level stuff, um, but stuff that if you you know are, consider yourself like a hardcore deer hunter, just stuff you either need to know or could be helpful to you. Um, a lot of this stuff is going to come from like MSU Deer Lab or Texas A&M or, or even just other podcasts that I've listened to throughout the last year. So um, some of it's going to be... Uh, hunting related, uh, but most of it is just going to be like deer related, like deer behavior. That's uh, mostly what we're going to be talking about. Uh, some other things is just going to be like stuff that I've learned, you know, throughout uh, my hunting career that I want to share with you guys. Uh, just things to, you know, keep in mind as deer season's approaching or starting really. Um, so yeah, just lots of little tips, tricks, um, but mostly just kind of, a, this is going to be fairly educational. Uh, and then if I have time at the end, I might do a little bit of like, uh, goals, hit list bucks, stuff like that. But um, I think I have quite a bit to cover here, uh, so I'm pretty excited for it. Um, so yeah, that that's what this week's episode is going to be about. Like I said, it's just going to be me, and we're going to deep dive into just just whitetail deer. So I'm pretty excited about it. Um, quick little update before we get there, though. Uh, I was able to go out to the ranch this last weekend, and I uh, got two good days in. And guys, I knocked out basically the rest of my list so uh man what did i do i i filled the rest of my feeders that i didn't get filled last time 
Uh, I did a little bit of mowing, like mowed some trails and stuff. I knocked down, uh, like I, I had sprayed my food plots three weeks before, got a, a great kill on everything, went ahead and kind of mowed them just to kind of get some of the, the rubbish stuff down. And then uh, I got my dozing done to where I could get my tractor and drill into the back, got all my food, plot, food plots planted, got all my cameras set up. Um, I think the only thing that I didn't get accomplished, one of my, and it's so funny because I talked about it like twice on this podcast about checking your feeders ahead of time. Well, I did that. I checked all my feeders ahead of time and there was one of them that I was like, oh, I need a new battery for this feeder. So I bought a battery. I took it with me. I hooked the battery up and the feeder still wasn't working. And I discovered that it was actually the timer. The battery in the feeder was good. The timer itself had gone out, which never happens. Like, I've, I've ran a lot of feeders for a long time, and I've had that happen like maybe once or twice. Um, and so that feeder, it's filled. It's got a good battery in it. Every, like all the wires and stuff are good. Uh, I ordered a new timer. It's Actually, it's supposed to come in today. Um, and so uh, I think this weekend we're actually going to go hang out with my brother and his family, uh, maybe go to the lake or something like that. And so I'll be able to run back there real quick, switch the timer out, and all my feeders will be running. All my food plots are planted if we could get some rain to help those suckers grow, that'd be great. Um, but I'm pretty well set up. Uh, stands are hung. I got bow hangers, bow ropes. Uh, I got to get a few more chairs for the blinds. Um, but I, like basically pretty much every single spot I have, I could go hunt it right now. And that's just a great feeling. So, so yeah, set up, ready to go. Uh, I got to do the timer. Uh, I got to adjust one camera. I just I, I needed a, a different bracket than what I had. Um, but you know, just little small things like that, nothing major. Um, so yeah, I got, um, I got, well, right now I got three of my four deer feeders running plus one hog feeder. The hogs are already hitting it. Um, so I'm excited about that. I'm kind of, I'm trying to figure out how this weekend when we go up there to hang out, I could, uh, maybe jump in a stand with my longbow and try to kill a hog. Uh, but I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, my brother really wants me to take, uh, one of his sons fishing and, you know, I'd, I'd, rather do that anyway i need to take him fishing so uh so yeah i think we're gonna go hang out and then go to the lake with the whole family and then take uh my nephew uh out to go fishing so so that's the plan for this weekend i'm gonna leave as much of the deer stuff alone as i can even though i'm going up there like i said i need to go switch out that one timer um but yeah i'm i'm pretty hands-off even this last weekend when i was up there i was trying to stay as hands-off as possible um, you know, like uh, most of the feeders were already running. I think I, I had to fill like two of them. Um, uh, so I, you know, basically got there, filled them, left that type of thing, uh, with the food plots. I, I just, I showed up, I planted them, left. I didn't get out of the tractor or anything like that. Walk around, scout, none of that stuff. All that stuff is done. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm basically ready to go. And so, uh, I, I plan, I think I'll get to hunt at least, Saturday of opening weekend. I don't think I'll get to stay till Sunday, um, but I'm planning on Saturday evening, and uh, I think I might actually have a shot. I don't know if I've ever uh, said that going into opening weekend. A, a lot of times I'll go just to kind of go, um, but I tried. This is this is a, a bonus tip. This I didn't even have this in my notes, but I tried something new this year. Something I've been wanting to do for years, and it's just kind of never worked out. Um, but at uh, at one of my feeder locations where I normally have the most summer activity, I added a protein feeder. It was one I already had. It's a 300-pound, all-seasons, galvanized uh, protein feeder. And I've had that thing running for several weeks now, probably six weeks, something like that. And I've got deer bucks hitting it every night, and they've started to kind of hit it in daylight, a couple of them. Um, and so uh, I filled it. I refilled it this last weekend. I think hopefully there's enough in there to make it to opening day. And so that's more than likely where I'll hunt if the wind is, uh, if the wind is right. And, um, there's two bucks, uh, that have been coming like right on the edge of daylight. And, uh, they're the two bucks that I would happily take with my longbow. And so fingers crossed, that's kind of my plan for opening day. Uh, there's another buck there that I'm trying, I'm trying real hard not to shoot him. Uh, he's a good looking deer. Uh, I don't have any history with him as far as I know. I'm pretty sure he's a four year old. Uh, and I, man, he could just, he could be something really special if I don't kill him this year. I just, I just don't know if I can not kill him, but I'm, I'm going to try my best. Um, but we'll see what happens. Like if I end up killing him, I'm not going to be super sad because he's a great deer. Uh, but if, if he did have one more year, I mean, he could be, he could be something cool. So anyway, enough about that. That's enough for this intro. 
already laid out uh you know what we're gonna be talking about this week so so yeah that's gonna do it for my intro here we're gonna hear a quick word from our sponsors and then we're gonna get into a big time deer education course so i hope you guys are ready i hope y'all are fired up for this hunting season and um yeah let's do this thing let's go it's hunting season here we go right after word from our sponsors let's freaking get it i love getting my boat out on the lake But now that I have a little girl, I'm always looking for simple, easy ways to get outdoors. If that sounds like you, head to Private Water Fishing and sign up for your membership today. Not only does it give you an easy, hassle-free, private place to fish, but many of these lakes even include a boat of some kind for you to use so you don't have to mess with getting yours out of storage. Add to the fact that these large private lakes are professionally managed for trophy bass and you really have nothing to lose. In fact, I've been on their social media pages the last couple days, and they have been pulling some tanks out of these lakes. So head over to privatewaterfishing.com and get signed up today. My family and I have done a decent amount of land buying and selling over the last few years, and one thing we have learned is that the agent you choose can absolutely have an effect on your buying or selling experience. When it comes time to make this huge financial decision, make sure to go with the folks at Arrowhead Land Company. They have agents all across the state, and they will work hard for you to get the best deal that they can possibly do. That's Arrowhead Land Company, hardworking agents for hardworking landowners. All right, folks, velvet is gone, and bucks are shifting to their fall patterns, and that means it's prime time to start using Deer Lab. Just yesterday, I was uploading a bunch of my cell cam photos to Deer Lab and creating profiles for my hit list bucks. It's super simple. You just use the tag feature on the site to assign that tag to a certain buck, and then you can create a profile. From there, the software does the rest, and you can simply sit back and use the data the app provides to tell you when and where you have the best chance of catching up to that deer. If you can think of something that influences deer movement, Deer Lab tracks it. Weather, wind, time of day, location, moon phase, it does it all. And all you have to do is upload the photos. Go to DeerLab.com and don't forget to use code OklahomaOutdoors, all one word, for 20% off. Alright guys, here we go. We're going to dive in now. I'm going to try my best to stay on topic. I got a list here in front of me. I'm going to try to slow my talking down and uh, just really work through this. And uh, and yeah, we're going to deep dive here a little bit. So... The first thing I want to talk about, the first thing that I learned over the summer, um, the Wired to Hunt podcast, uh, which is normally led by Mark Kenyon, but it's pretty much been a Tony Peterson show lately. Uh, We had Tony Peterson on a few weeks ago, so I'm going to call him a friend of the show. And uh, he basically interviewed a bunch of biologists, and they just covered a bunch of deer topics. Um, And one of the most interesting ones to me, he had on Dr. Bradley Cohen, and they talked about how deer see. And uh, I would highly recommend you go listen to the entire episode because I'm not going to be able to get into all the super, you know, scientific stuff like he did. But I'm going to give you the general gist of what I learned. And uh, what I learned is that deer see very differently than us. And I mean that in more than one way. Um, One of the biggest things that I learned was that uh, deer, basically their brain can process images faster than a human. So what this means is essentially deer see in slow motion and it makes sense because they are a predator species. You know, they like their, their life is on the line at all times. Everything's trying to kill them. And so, uh, you know, think about when you're in a deer stand, that deer comes out and you're trying to, you know, reach for your bow on the hanger, or maybe you're in a deer stand and you're leaning over to pick up your rifle or your binoculars, whatever it is. You may feel like you're moving super slow and smooth and stuff, but to a deer, that is like how we would see. Like if you think you're moving slow, that's probably how they would see if we were just moving in normal time. Uh, And so, you know, movement, like that's what it kind of boils down to. Like you really, really have to watch your movement. You have to time it out to where you want that deer to have their head down. You want them to be looking away. You know, maybe they're looking back behind them because another deer is coming or something like that. That's when you, when you want to make your movement to grab your bow or your rifle or something like that. Um, another big difference is color. Um, you know, one thing that I've always, like, I've always kind of had a hatred for hunter orange. I'm like, oh, like I buy all this expensive camo and then you expect me to wear orange over it and it ruins it all and stuff. 
but just the way deer see, they just see colors differently than us, and they really don't see the color orange well. Um, they see blues super well. And so, you know, a lot of guys are out there in their blue jeans. That is way worse than wearing an orange vest. Um, and then one thing they talked about was a lot of fabrics, you know, like in clothing are made with dyes. And so it'll, you know, it'll be like a base. It'll be a white, uh, you know, fabric or whatever that's made out of. And then they use dyes to kind of color it. And a lot of the dyes that they use have blues in them. And so even though to us, it doesn't stick out or it doesn't, you know, it doesn't look bright or blue or anything like that to a deer, those blues stick out. And so, you know, who manufactures the clothing he talked about is a big deal. Um, and then one thing that he kind of like, I mean, it almost, I feel like I knew this. I feel like I've been learning it over the last couple of years. Uh, camo patterns are for humans, not deer. It, it really does not matter whether you have the old school, you like bark looking camo or digital camo or all of this and that. I mean, it might make a, a teeny tiny little blending with your surroundings type difference. Um, but it's it's more about uh, kind of like I mentioned, it's more about blending in with your surrounding than it is the actual pattern itself. Uh, so that's one thing that is I don't know, just really stuck out to me. And uh, you know, like quality of clothing is really what people should be more concerned about instead of the the camo pattern on that clothing. Like you know, nicer gear is going to keep you warmer or drier or breathe better to keep you cooler. That's the type of stuff you need to be shopping for not the pattern on the outside. You know, like I just like you, I probably I like my camo to match, you know, I like to look all pretty and cool and stuff. But again, that's really more for humans than the deers, but but the biggest thing about it was the motion thing. I just thought that was fascinating. Just, just and it, it makes total sense. Like I said, everything is trying to kill them and so they are on hyper alert at all time. Um so yeah, again, really you should go listen to that um uh, to that interview because it was super super intriguing and the main takeaway for me was when you think you're moving slow move even slower the next couple things i want to talk about all come from the msu deer lab that is the mississippi state deer lab and if you guys are not keeping up with them you're making a big mistake if you want to learn about deer there are not many places better than the msu deer lab they have youtube videos they have their own podcast the podcast has kind of slowed down as of late. They put a bunch out, and then it's kind of taken a back seat lately. But uh, uh, it's it's two guys. It's Dr. Bronson Strickland and Dr. Steve Damaris. They run the Deer Lab, and they kind of you know they do all the or well they guide all the researchers, their grad students and stuff, and they do some really really amazing research. Um, and you can I, like some people argue like, hey, that's Mississippi, but a lot of this stuff is going to apply to us here in Oklahoma as well. So uh, they did a big collared deer study where they put deer collars or collars on bucks, followed them around for a certain amount of time. And uh, they put out, I want to say there's like nine to 11 uh, pretty short videos. They're like four to five or most of them are four to five minutes. And uh, man, like they just learned some amazing things about how bucks move, when bucks move, where they move. And so, again, I would really, really encourage you to go watch all those videos. But, uh, again, I picked out a couple of the highlights that I'm going to talk about here that uh, I think are really, really important. So the first thing I want to talk about, uh, one of them that they did, they just kind of did like a general study of how far bucks move. Uh, so, again, these these are bucks. They tracked them for a certain amount of time, and uh, they cl- they were collecting data points uh, pretty regular. I want to say like every hour they got a data point from all these different deer. And in this one particular study that I'm about to talk about, they were really focused on two things. They were, talk- they were focusing on total path length, which is basically how far that buck walked throughout the entire day. So he went from point A to point B, point B to point C, C to D, so on and so forth. So how far he uh, just walked in total. And then they also studied the net displacement. And so what that is, is basically they picked where he started, you know, where he was bedded. He got up, he went and walked around, and then where he finished and how far apart those two distances were. Um, And so... I mean, there's a lot to learn here, you know, how much they're traveling throughout the day. And then they also studied this in two different times of year. They basically did pre-rut and then during the rut to study how much difference there is in those two times of years. 
And so, got a lot to unpack here, so stay with me. So, uh, one of the bucks that they followed in the early season, his, and this is, again, pre-rut, so his total path length throughout one day was 1,500 yards. And so, just over a mile. So, he got up from his bed, he, you know, went, walked through the woods, walked through food plots, ate, uh, all that good stuff, and then he bedded back down. And when he bedded back down, his net displacement, so from the distance from one bed to his next bed, was 950 yards. And so, again, walked about a mile. Uh, most of that movement was at night. There was a little bit during, you know, uh, right after sunrise and right after sunset. But most of that was traveled at night. And then he wound up almost a 1,000 yards from where he started. And so... Uh, you know, buck beds, we've talked about buck beds several times on this podcast. Uh, it's a huge kind of buzzword in the hunting industry. There's people, you know, forming their whole hunting strategy around buck beds. And, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but you need to keep this study in mind if you are a buck bed hunter, because, uh, you know, if you are like, let's say you find one buck bed and you're like, all right, I'm going to hunt this buck bed. That buck, he might have bedded there the day before, but he might be a thousand yards away from there that next day. Um, and so that's something that was super interesting to me because I think a lot of people, especially with like, you know, following the hunting public guys and just all this buck bed craze, I feel like people, they think if they find a bed, they have it made. And they're like, all right, like that buck's going to be here. And it's just not the case. Like they, they bed in the same area. You know, a thousand yards really isn't that awful far. Um, but it's definitely not within bow range, you know, or even rifle range for that matter. Uh, and so bucks just, they're not going to be in the exact same place every single night. So I think that's important. Uh, but what's even more important with this study is that if you look at that same buck, same location, same year, and you move to the rut. Uh, so again, early season, he moved, or his total path length was 1500 yards. His net displacement was 950 yards. Fast forward to the rut, his total path length went up to 2,300 yards, 2,300 yards, so not quite double, but a whole lot more. And then also another interesting thing was that if you look at the time of day, a whole lot of that movement was during daytime. And a lot of it too was during uh, day, like, like midday. Um, and you can follow his route on the map, that's what I'm saying, you should go look up these videos because it's very interesting to watch this stuff. Um, and he went through like a couple different food plots. He went into a big ag field. And, uh, when he walked across the two, uh, food plots, they were both like midday. They were not morning and evening. I'm talking midday. And so that's something I really struggle with is hunting all day. I just don't have the patience. Um, but man, if it's peak rut, like you need to be out there, uh, because these bucks, they really are moving. They're moving more. They're moving more in daylight. And you just got to be out there. But then also, his net displacement was 1,600 yards, so almost double. Um, so not only are these bucks moving more, but they're bedding in more places. The, the bedding's a lot more sporadic. You know, just because they start there doesn't mean that in the back of their mind, they're like, hey, I need to be there this evening. They're just going to bed wherever they end up. And so I think that's a big part too. And then also, like, if you're a small parcel person, I mean, this like this would really, really stand out to me if I was hunting a small parcel because these bucks are on their feet. You know, you hear the stories of uh, people shooting bucks during the rut, and they say they've never seen that buck before, or they don't have any pictures of it or anything like that. These deer are just covering ground during the rut. Um, and a lot of it, you know, like, if you follow the map, again, super interesting, you should go watch it. He's not necessarily branching out into places he has never been before. He's just traveling more. And it's, it's more sporadic. Like preseason, he's like, hey, I'm going to this spot because that's my goal. Like I'm going to feed or I'm going to water and then I'm going back to feed and then I'm going to bed. During the rut, it's kind of all over the place. He's still kind of in his core area, but he's just traveling all over that core area in more random patterns looking for does. So much more daylight activity much more travel. Another thing that they learned, kind of a separate topic that they learned during this uh, colored study, is that there are basically two types of bucks. There are sedentary bucks and mobile bucks. Two-thirds of bucks are sedentary bucks, and that's probably what I have more experience with from what I've found from running my trail cameras over the years and stuff. And uh, these sedentary bucks tend to stay in the same place, and then every once in a while they might go on a little excursion 
but it's just going to last a day or two, and then they're going to come back. And again, this is two-thirds bucks, so the majority of the bucks are this way. And these bucks tend to usually have a summer and a fall range. And again, running my trail cameras and stuff that I've been running for years, that's kind of what I see. A lot of times you have a lot of these bucks kind of grouped up in the summer in one spot, and then about this time of year, late September, early October, you see them branch out and they head to their fall range. And that's where we're really hunting them, is more in their fall range. Um, again, they might kind of venture out, look for some new territory or something, but it's usually just going to be a day or two, and then they're going to come right back. So again, that's two-thirds of bucks. And then you have the mobile buck, and they have some pretty crazy extreme bucks in this mobile category. Um, they have one that like swims the Mississippi River every year, uh, sets up a home range there, and then swims back. Uh, they've tracked one buck. I can't remember exactly, but it, it was like a couple hundred miles that this buck traveled. And uh, what they found is that these bucks, they still kind of had a home range, but they would make much further and much more frequent and uh, really, like, it just seemed like they didn't have a pattern to their excursions, you know? Like, they would go one way for a long ways, they'd stay there a couple days, and then they'd come back. And then after a little while, they'd go another direction. They'd stay there for a couple days or a week or whatever, and then they'd come back. And so they still had a home range. They just left it more often. They left it more sporadically, and, uh, and there was just no pattern to it. Like, uh, they just kind of... <laughs> whenever they felt like it and uh and again as a hunter this kind of makes me excited because it you know this is what makes hunting fun you're sitting there and you stand and you just never know what's going to show up and that is these mobile bucks and again they only count for one third and so it's not like it just happens all the time uh and like those extreme cases of bucks going hundreds of miles i think that's you know super super rare like a very you know probably a half a percent of bucks um, but it can happen, and again, that's what makes hunting fun, is because you just never know what's going to step out in front of you. Um, as far as like being a private land hunter like myself, um, I kind of enjoy the sedentary bucks because those are the ones that are patternable. You know, especially if you're like a bow hunter and you're trying to get a a, a buck in close to get a, a bow shot to him. These are the bucks that you're going to be hunting. You want that buck that has a small home range that you can hone in on, you can track, you know, you can pattern. Uh, and those are the bucks that are going to be more reliable to kill. If you're more of a, you know, a gun hunter or weekend warrior type, you're only going to hunt a few times a year. Those mobile bucks, those are the ones that, you know, make your dreams come true because you just never know what's going to happen. Uh, but I just thought that was interesting. You know, I, we talk about bucks having personalities and, and they really do. Um, and so just something to keep in mind is, you know, you're going to have those homebody bucks, but at the same time, you just never know what's going to step out of the timber. So I thought that study was very, very interesting. And again, really, guys, go watch all these videos and learn about these studies. So we have one more study from MSU that I want to talk about. Uh, this one was, again, I don't know, I feel like I have a lot of favorites, but this one was incredibly interesting to me. And uh, they actually did this study in Oklahoma, so that one kind of hits home. Uh, and they did a study on how bucks react to hunting pressure. So they did this on a large, I believe it was a public track, uh, and they split it up into three sections. They had one section that was heavily hunted, one section that was kind of moderately hunted, and one section that was not hunted at all. And they had a bunch of collared deer in this, and they actually they asked the hunters not to shoot the collared bucks so that they could you know get all the data from it, and uh, and they basically studied how the deer's movements changed once hunting pressure was uh, brought in, and so I don't remember the exact acreages. I want to say on the heavily hunted area uh, there was one hunter per like eighty acres on the moderate. I think it was like one hunter per two hundred. Uh, don't quote me on that. Um, and, uh, and then they just studied, you know, how these deer move uh, with once all these hunters, you know, started entering the woods. And uh, they said, I believe it was, in, was within three days. You know, hunters went in there. Uh, they're going in there all day. Some of them were hunting all day long. Some of them were going in for the morning, leaving, coming in for the evening. Uh, and within three days, these bucks made drastic changes. Uh, one thing that was kind of cool was their, their total distance traveled did not change much. What happened is when they traveled, they became more nocturnal. 
uh, you know, the curse of all deer hunters uh, is deer moving at night, and that's exactly what happened. They they didn't move any less. They just moved differently. And then they also, they hugged to cover more. That was a big part, a uh, big takeaway too. They stuck to the cover, the thick areas where they knew they'd be safer. Um, and there was, uh, again, you guys really need to go watch this video because there were so many lessons learned. One of the, the interesting things was even the deer in the area that was completely unhunted, they changed their behavior also. It was like a domino effect. As soon as the deer in the hunting areas started acting differently, those deer in the unhunted area picked up on that and they started changing their behavior themselves. So that was one thing that was incredibly interesting. They also talked about kind of like like successful hunters and, and, you know, like the sightings and everything like that about like hunters that were uh, sitting in one spot versus hunters that were moving around. And they actually found that the people who sat in one spot had more opportunity than the people who were moving around because the people who were moving around were pushing those deer and they were pushing them by the people who were just sitting there. So that was another super interesting thing. Take that as you will. Um, but yeah, very, very interesting study. The, the crazy part to me was that the bucks that were in the unhunt, unhunted area were also affected. Um, and again, like I'm always trying to relate this stuff to, you know, my hunting scenario and how I would use this stuff. Uh, and, and to me, the, the biggest takeaway for me was how important it is to keep your stands fresh, you know, to not, uh, not over hunt these stands. Um, when the study was finished, they, they didn't get to, to study the deer as long as they wanted because they were, they basically had the collars sending signals really often so they could track them, you know, better. Um, but they did say it took about a week after the hunting was over, uh, for the deer to kind of start moving back to like a more normal pattern. They were not back to normal after a week. They were just kind of moving that direction. And so for me, especially if you're like a small acreage guy, you know, if you can only hunt 40, 80 acres, something like that, um, you got to have more than one setup. You know, you can't just hunt the same spot over and over again and expect to be successful. And especially if you're trying to kill, you know, a, a larger or a more mature buck, you got to have, you got to change it up. You got to have more spots um, and you got to hunt smart. You know, you don't want those deer detecting you. Uh, for me, again, you know, I'm hunting my, I'm kind of thinking of my place. Uh, you know, I have uh, four feeders set up, but I also have other stands that are not on feeders. You know, I have more options that I can base on wind and everything like that. Uh, and even my feeders, like if I'm not getting pictures of bucks in daylight, I'm not hunting those spots. Uh, even if I'm getting like big deer at night, I'm still not hunting them. I think I talked about it a week or two ago. Uh, there's a buck that I've had the last two years. The last two years, he's been right around Boone. I mean, right around that 170 mark. In two years, I think I've hunted that buck maybe six times. Uh, and last year, I didn't qu get quite as many pictures of him. Uh, but two years ago, I mean, I was getting his picture every single night for, for weeks on end. But I still wasn't going in there and hunting him because he was only coming at night. He was bedded on the neighbors. I knew that because there's just there was no cover on our place where he was, um, and so I just stayed out of there because I was trying to make him feel comfortable, comfortable enough to come in daylight. And so I I knew the only way I could accomplish that was to just stay away and keep the area clear. So even though I had this gigantic buck coming into this feeder, I did not hunt it because I knew I had to stay away. Uh, and it's just like, you know, if you're going to, you know, like me, I'm a weekend warrior. Like many people, I work during the week. I can't hunt whenever I want to, you know, if I go up to hunt for a weekend, uh, you know, I may make it up in time to hunt Friday afternoon. Then I'm going to hunt Saturday morning, Saturday evening, Sunday morning, then I'm probably going to head home. Uh, and so you got to spread yourself around. Like you don't want to hunt your same, the same stand you know, four hunts in a row or whatever. And, and you know, you're, you're hitting the ground eight times if you're hunting in the same spot four times, cause you're walking in and then you're walking out. Um, and you, so you just, you don't want to do that. You got to keep it, you got to keep it fresh, you know, hunt it one afternoon, maybe give it a break the next morning, maybe hunt it the next afternoon and then leave it. Uh, you just, you got to keep it fresh. Now, again, there's like, I learned something else like you kind of get a benefit of being a weekend warrior because it forces you 
not to overhunt these spots. You know, if you have multiple locations and everything, you know, I can, like, if I want to, let's say there is even a deer coming in that I want to try to kill, I might hunt it a time or two in a weekend, and then I'm out. You know, I'm back at work, I'm back with the family, and it gets five days or whatever to, to, you know, with human free, those deer get to get in there and, uh, you know, not be pressured or anything like that. And then if they're still there, I'm going to try them again the next weekend. So again, like as you're, you know, like again, go listen to all these, you know, buck movement things. Uh, but as you're listening to him, don't just take the knowledge for what it is. Try to apply it to your situation and how it can help you take advantage of these deer. Um, I, I love that study. Uh, again, go listen to it. I, I feel like I just keep saying that, but it, uh, I really mean that. Go listen to all these videos from the MSU Deer Lab. Um, but keep it in mind also, you know, like with the whole, uh, moving around thing, take advantage of your neighbor. You know, if your neighbor's the kind that can't sit still and is going to be up or around walking around, sit tight, let them push those deer to you. Um, you know, the hunting public guys, if y'all have ever watched them, uh, every year, uh, Jake goes up to Wisconsin. And if you've ever seen those episodes, it sounds like world war (laughs) three opening day of Wisconsin. Like it would scare me because you just, you just hear so many gunshots. Uh, but Jake and his family, their strategy on opening day, they go in insanely early. You know, they sit there in the dark for hours, let everything calm down and then as the sun comes up, you know, they'll see some deer movement, but then they sit really long. And when all their neighbors start getting up and start heading back to the cabin to go hang out, they get a whole second wave of deer movement coming in. Uh, you can do the same thing on your place, you know, take advantage of those neighbors um, and let them push the deer to you. All right, moving on to our next lesson. This one's kind of a combination of the MSU Deer Lab and Adam and Matt over at Land and Legacy. And it's just how much a deer eats every day. Uh, so they know that deer, on average, let's say it's a 150-pound deer, they're going to eat about 6 to 8% of their body weight every day in wet weight. Like, you know, if they go up and they pick a leaf, that, that leaf has water in it and stuff, that's considered, like, wet weight. Um, and so 6 to 8%, you know, if you, let's say average 7, 7%, that's going to be about 10 pounds. They need about 10 pounds of forage every day, one deer. And uh, MSU has a great video that illustrates this, and he's, you know, talking about all this stuff. And he has a this giant Tupperware there, and he's pull, he actually has the amount of leaves that it would take to, you know, make up that weight. And so the whole time he's talking, he's just pulling out handfuls and handfuls of these leaves um and you know he of course he ends up with this giant pile and again that is for one deer for one day and so i think a lot of times as deer hunters and deer managers um you know our mind comes to food plots and we're like all right if i make this food i'm you know i'm doing all this for the deer i'm feeding the deer i'm providing for them and and yes you are like you are helping them you you know and you are taking weight off of the native forage by helping that especially if you're you know like in my case uh you know i just planted six acres of food plots last weekend and i was planting that like i was turning bermuda grass pasture that has zero effect you know zero benefit for deer i was then turning that into a food plot of wheat and turnips uh so yes much more beneficial but again like if you look at the amount uh, that this guy pulled out uh, into this pile of what it, it takes to fill to feed a deer for one day, your food plot is not doing near as much as you think. Uh, and that's where Adam and Matt come into it because Adam and Matt, you know, they're huge on native species and doing all around habitat work. Um, you know, they preach all the time. Uh, food plots are for hunting; they're not for feeding deer. It takes way, way more than that. Um, and so that, that's just one, like, again, just having that visual, it really put it into perspective for me of, of honestly kind of how bad the habitat is at our place because it, it, it's a cattle ranch. Like it's not necessarily out there for wildlife. Um, and I do have my little back area that I can manipulate and stuff. And, you know, this summer or this spring, I should say, we did a bunch of burning. I did some dozer work. I cleared some cedars and stuff like that. Um, but I just, I just have so much further to go. Um, and it was almost kind of, I mean, it almost pained me a little bit, uh, again, just seeing that visual of, uh, of how bad our habitat is. Um, and just how like the lack of food there is 
Um, again, you know, our place has very, very little timber. Um, what, you know, quote, I put in this in quotes, what timber there is, is, is mostly cedar trees. Um, we do have a lot of young, uh, growth that's better for deer. Uh, we don't have a lot of mature trees because, uh, the previous owner basically dozed the entire property back in 2008. Um, and so, you know, in some senses, I kind of, I have a blank canvas. Like it's, you know, I don't have to like bring in a logger to clear all these trees. We have the equipment to do it. Um, I just got to get in there and do it. Like I can, I can do so much better, uh, with what we have than what is out there. And so, um, again, like, yeah, food plots are great. Uh, especially, like I said, if you're, if you're taking stuff that is not beneficial for deer and turning it into what is beneficial, but that's just, it's not enough most likely. And you need to manage your native habitat, your trees, your grasses, shrubs, all that type of stuff, uh, because that is really what's feeding your deer. Food plots are great, feeders are great, um, but the large majority ma- majority of the deer's diet is going to come from stuff that really you have nothing to do with. Like it's nature's pantry. That's really what the deer are eating. Uh, so this, that was kind of a quick little lesson. But uh, again, go watch that video for like the thousandth time of the MSU Deer Lab where he's pulling out the leaf matter. It just really drove home how important it is to manage your entire landscape and not just your food plots. All right, we're going to transition here just a little bit. We're not done yet, uh, but we're kind of going to kind of move from things that I've learned from other people uh, into things that I kind of learned myself. And uh, to kind of bridge the gap, we're going to stick on habitat just a little bit longer. And I talked about this, I want to say two weeks ago on the podcast, but I want to talk about uh, something that I learned in Nebraska that I hit on a lot, and that's just the importance of edge habitat and also just the lack of edge habitat that we have here in Oklahoma, at least on my place. And I feel like, you know, I've been around quite a bit and I think a lot of you are going to relate to what I'm about to say. And so when I was in Nebraska, you know, you had a bunch of big ag fields, uh, but then and, and then you'd have, you know, like creeks or something that had, you know, timber around it or at least a little row of trees to kind of help with erosion and stuff. And a lot of times between that ag and those creeks, you would have CRP ground, you know, just kind of thick, nasty, what a lot of people would consider weeds, um, you know, native grasses, whatever. And it just, it created edge like I've never seen here, at least on our place in Oklahoma. And again, here in Oklahoma, much more populated, a huge ag state. And a lot of times it's either cattle pasture or it's farm ground. Um, And neither of those are very good for edge habitat uh, because you're trying to maximize, you know, your profitability on acreage. So, you know, for us, like as ranchers, you know, basically we have fences on our property boundaries and we have our pastures, you know, fenced off into smaller deals and the cows pretty much have free reign of everything within that fence. And so wherever there's, wherever there normally would be like a transition, let's say from pasture to timber, uh, the cows have eaten all that grass up to that timber. They've gone into the timber and either eaten or trampled a lot of that stuff. And so you just, you have a very hard transition. There's no edge. Um, same with farming. A lot of times you either spray or plow or whatever, and you plant right up to that fence or right up to that woodlot or whatever. And then, uh, you know, when it's come times to harvest, you obviously take all that out. And again, there goes your edge because you're trying to maximize the profitability. You're trying to farm every acre you can. Uh, And again, you lose that edge. Um, And so just, uh, again, trying to, you know, wrap this, my head around this and try to figure out how I can help this out. Because again, when I was walking around Nebraska, I'd be following these, uh, these edge habitat areas and like the deer sign was just outrageous. It was just deer bed, deer bed, deer bed, rub, 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 you know. Um, and so I, I wanted to try to figure out how I could do that on our place. And so uh, one thing that I mentioned on that podcast, uh, something that I want to try is, uh, well, first off, sorry, let me back up a little bit. So I mentioned I, I planted my food plots this last weekend. Um, and so when I sprayed uh, a few weeks ago, I purposely didn't spray all the way to the tree line. I left a little buffer there. There. Uh, and then this weekend, you know, I went and I planted. And so now I'm going to have food plot 
and then I'm going to have about 10 yards or so of still thick, nasty grass, and then you're going to hit the cedars or the woodlot or whatever, or the draw, wherever I am. Uh, so I just, I, I purposely tried to leave that little gap there to have more of a transition. And then something that I want to try to do this spring, um, you know, I'm thinking of one food plot in, in particular, it's our back food plot. It's my biggest one. It's where I get the most deer activity during the summer. And, uh, basically the tree line that it hits is essentially a hundred percent cedar trees. Um, there's not really any big timber back there. Uh, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, the previous owner cut it all. Uh, and so one thing I want to try this spring is, uh, on that edge where those cedars are, uh, because the cedars, you know, they have really low limbs, they stick out and they just kill everything underneath it. I want to try to basically limb all the limbs on that edge side. So basically leave the, uh, the timbered side, if you want to call it that of the cedar tree intact, limb the other side and try to get that that buffer zone, those grasses and weeds and all that stuff to grow right up to the base of those trees and really actually have an edge because that's what I was seeing in Nebraska and that's where I was seeing all that deer sign. Um, you know, if you if you don't have that um, kind of thing lined out, you know, if you have cows or whatever, you might have to get a little bit more creative. Maybe you can use some electric fence and, uh, you know, where you have those trees maybe come out 10 or 15 yards and run that electric fence down a long ways to help that grass not get grazed. Um, if you're farming, maybe bump it over just a couple rows, you know, don't, don't go right down the fence line or right down the timber line, leave that little bit of edge. Um, I, I really, for the first time, uh, I really understand the concept of edge feathering. That's another thing that Adam and Matt preach. Um, I've never really understood why you do that. Um, I feel like I've even, I've preached about it on this podcast. Like I, I I somewhat got the concept of it before, but now after seeing this uh, again, just kind of having this res- revelation in Nebraska, I understand why people do that now. Uh, so if you think of that hard edge, that timber line where where pasture or field or whatever meets the woods, and you have you just immediately have all these big trees falling. Some of those big trees. Uh, to let that sunlight into that barrier zone and letting that thick stuff grow up to where it's instead of going pasture straight into, you know, closed canopy, you then have pasture and you have this thick, nasty edge habitat and then closed canopy. Uh, it, it like, that's the reason you do it again. Like it sounds so stupid and so elementary, but it just really finally clicked for me why people do that. Um, so again, that's just something that really, really, really hit home with me uh, this summer. Let's see here, what else is on the list? Um, this this stuff was kind of more into the the hunting zone. Um, just something to really keep in mind as we head, uh, especially early season here, and as we head into deer season. Uh, one note that I have here is don't chase unkillable bucks. And what I mean by that in particular is you get that one or two pictures during the summer of that mega giant, that big buck that you're drooling over, but you just get that one or two pictures of him. Don't waste your whole season chasing that buck that more than likely is not going to be back. And if he does come back, he might run through, you know, one time during the season, uh, enough, you know, enough to kind of ignite that hope again. I've been there, guys. I've chased that deer don't waste your season. Even if he's a mega giant, if he's not coming around, there's no sense in hunting him. Hunt the deer that are showing up. If he happens to come by during daylight and you see him, awesome, fantastic. You know, don't pass him up. Um, but don't. I, I again, I've done this in the past. I've I've wasted tags because I was chasing deer that I had a couple nighttime pictures of or a couple pictures in the summer. And then when fall came around, that shift that we were talking about earlier happens, and he's just nowhere around. Uh, so hunt the deer that you might actually have a chance on. Uh, you know, I talked about that that one buck, and, and he's back this year. He's been here the last two years. Um, this year, he's a seven-year-old. He's actually shrunk. He went from a, a big, massive 10-point down to like a more mediocre nine-point. Still a great deer. I'd still be thrilled to, to, to kill him. Uh, I mean, I would, I would put him on the wall for sure. Um, but he's just not quite what he used to be. Um, 
but I, I learned le- that lesson on previous deer, and that's why I've not been hunting hunting this deer that I'm talking about near as hard as I did in the past because I just I've learned like he he he's not on our place. He comes onto our place at night to eat at one of my feeders, but he lives on the neighbors. And so there's no reason for me to go hunt that stand and waste all that time that I could be chasing other deer uh, when he's not going to show up. Um, I think in two years, I think I have three daylight pictures of that deer. I have one in the morning that's like full on daylight. And I have two where, I mean, you know, he's within like 10 minutes of legal light, just kind of, it was the right conditions. Um, I think both of those times were late season. One of them, uh, one of them, I was with my wife in Oklahoma city at a Christmas concert. Uh, and then the other one, uh, the other one I also couldn't hunt. Uh, but like, I, I was, I was so interested in this deer that I remembered that specifically, you know, like where he was when he showed up. Um, but it just, it just wasn't worth it to hunt him. And w- like when he did come those evenings, you bet your bottom dollar, I was there the next day in case he did it again. Uh, but of course he didn't <laughs> and he's, but he's still out there. Who knows? Maybe in his old age, he's going to change his mind and show up in daylight. I've seen deer do that. Um, but just you got to be smart, guys. Like you gotta you gotta know if a deer is killable or not. So that's one of my big tips. What else do we got here? Uh, a big one. I preach this all the time. Y'all know I am a huge fan of late season. Uh, so just my tip is don't forget about the late season. Um, and if you do have that buck, that mega giant that you've been getting all summer, and then he disappears, if you're more than likely, if you're gonna kill him, you're gonna kill him after Christmas. That's, that's just kind of my date that I throw out there. Um, a lot of times after Christmas, those deer start moving back to their summer patterns. And I know it doesn't make sense because we call it a summer pattern and it's not summer. Um, but a lot of times once the rut is over, once that testosterone starts dropping again, that's when they start moving back towards those summer areas. Um, and so that's when you have your best shot to kill him. But also just, just any other deer that's on your place, uh, they just, after the rut is over, you know, after Christmas, one, a lot of people are out of the woods. There's way less hunting pressure. People have either gotten their buck or they gave up after rifle season and they're not hunting anymore or their feeder ran out and they don't want to fill it again. There's just way less people hunting. Um, and then deer just, they're slaves to their stomach. They have to regain all that weight and energy that they uh, put out during the rut and they got to get it back before winter comes and so do not give up on the late season I I mean y'all are probably sick of me hearing about it I've killed I have killed more bucks probably after Christmas than I have before Christmas now this last year I killed uh I know I killed two of mine before Christmas I think the the other one was either like two days before Christmas or two days after Christmas right around that time um, but yeah, like if, if you take away this year, I've definitely killed more after Christmas than before. Um, it's just, it's just a great time, especially for a bow hunter. Uh, you know, you can get those feeder setups or that food plot set up to where you can kind of control things, wait for the right wind. And they're just more likely to come out there in the evening during daylight hours. Another random hunting tip I have for you guys is pay attention to the past. Um, you know, Deer Lab and your trail cameras, a great tool. Keep up with them. Keep up with your past trail camera history. You know, if you're really onto a buck, pay attention to where he was at this time last year. Or more importantly, look ahead. You know, if it's uh, coming up to November, look at where you got pictures of him, where, when, all that stuff. You know, if he showed up in daylight uh, at a certain time last year, you better be there that time this year. I usually like to hunt, you know, the day before, that day, and the day after, if at all possible, um, because deer are creatures of habit, and it's almost it's almost scary and weird uh, how they will do the same thing every year. Um, and so, specifically, you know, watch those patterns, but also just uh, just pay attention to how deer move on your property. Um, you know, I hunt way differently uh, timeline wise on this property than I did on our last property that I hunted for seven or eight years, however long it was. Uh, On that property, it seemed like everything happened a little bit later. Uh, My favorite weekend to hunt 
was like that opening weekend of rifle, that end of November. It just seems like that one was really like a peak time. Like we had a lot of success uh, there at the end of November. Um, it seemed like late October was almost worthless. Like deer just, you know, the rut wasn't happening. They weren't moving yet. And then kind of as you got into November, uh, again, it was more like mid to late November when things really heated up. This new property, completely different. Like I will, I will do anything to hunt that last weekend in October. And before I thought it was worth, I thought that was a Midwest thing. I thought that was like, you know, just deer in Oklahoma don't do that. But it turns out like, I mean, we're only 30 miles from where I used to hunt, but the deer, the timing of the rut and the movement and all that stuff, it's just different. Uh, and it took me a little while to learn that. Uh, the first year we had that property, uh, I got two pictures of these like crazy bucks. Uh, one of them was the 30th. One of them was the 31st. Uh, that would have been, that would have been like four years ago, I think. Uh, no, wow. Longer than that. We've had this property longer than I thought. Uh, but then, uh, the next year after that, um, it was the first year I really set out to, to hunt it and I ended up killing a, a actually the biggest buck of my life on, uh, October 27th, I think it was. And again, on our other property, like, I'm, I mean, I, I might've been hunting, but I wouldn't have been like really trying to get there and hunt. Um, and, uh, what is it? Uh, two years ago during muzzleloader season, my, I famously missed two bucks in the same week with a super cheap muzzleloader I had. Uh, both of them were great bucks. Uh, this last year, my buddy Randy came up and muzzleloader hunted with me. He shot a great eight point that weekend. And so just pay attention to trends because things are going to happen at about the same time every year. Like I know that that weekend is a great weekend to hunt now. Um, and it, it's, it just is because I, I have that historical data. So not only pay attention to individual bucks and, you know, your trail camera stuff, but also just pay attention to trends because deer just kind of, they're going to kind of follow each other's lead. Just like we talked about earlier, uh, with, you know, deer learning from other deer with the hunting pressure thing, even though there wasn't hunting pressure where they were, they reacted to it. It's just like that with just about everything else. Uh, you know, if, if a doe comes into heat, those bucks are going to know about it and they're going to start reacting to that. Uh, same thing with late season. Again, like every year, without a doubt, around that Christmas time, bucks start coming in. They start coming in every day. They start coming in during daylight. Um, it just, like, I just know it happens every year. That's why I don't get, I don't get panicky if, uh, you know, it's halfway through December and I haven't filled a buck tag yet. Uh, again, like y'all are probably sick of me repeating myself two years ago i filled both my buck tags one of them january 1st one of them january 8th uh i just i didn't panic i knew the deer were going to be there so pay attention to those trends and learn from the past uh you just, you have to be a steward a steward a student of the woods uh keep a journal if you need to like for some reason uh i i tested i got tested for learning disabilities when i was col in college I tested in like the bottom 20% for reading comprehension. If I read something, I will not remember it. But if I see a deer, I'm going to remember everything about that moment. I'm going to remember whether it was a morning or an evening, where I was. Uh, like My memory just works that way. But if your memory doesn't work that way, keep a note on your phone. Keep a journal, something like that. Pay attention to the past because in the deer woods, things are just more predictable than you would think. Deer do the same thing. They follow a script. Uh, you know, it may be a little bit different, but if you look at the the big picture, the 10,000 foot view, things are going to be oddly similar every year. So, so that's my last tip for this week. Uh, I've, again, a lot of this stuff I've just been kind of compiling in my head and in my phone and stuff because I wanted to get it out there to you guys. Uh, I just wanted to get these lessons out there. I think this stuff is super important. Deer season's here, guys. Uh, you know, store this away, keep this on your phone, listen to this podcast over and over again if you need to. Go check out all those resources that we talked about. Um, the Wired to Hunt series, the MSU Deer Lab, Adam and Matt are always full of uh, knowledge over on the Land and Legacy podcast. Um, just just be a student of this thing that we love. Um, and something that I've kind of kind of like, I feel like I got overwhelmed with hunting stuff. Um, I just, I listened to, you know, I, I was into hunting, so I listened to as many hunting podcasts and, and YouTube videos and everything. And I wouldn't say that I've learned all that I could learn, but it just, it got very repetitive. And so I kind of, I've shifted and I've just been learning about deer lately. 
Um, and it has had a huge impact on how I plan to hunt this year, just knowing how deer act. Um, I feel like I know enough about hunting. I need to learn more about deer themselves. So, so that's the point of this podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And guys, I can't say this enough. Best of luck to you all going into this hunting season. Uh, please share this podcast with all your friends and family and, and anybody you might know, coworkers, whoever. Uh, we're going to have a great year. And, uh, you know, just like last year, I plan on taking you guys along with me um, in my intro or episode, whatever it might be. You know, I'm going to tell you guys what I've been seeing out there, what I've been up to, what I plan to be up to. If I have some success, I'm obviously going to be sharing that with you guys. Um, I don't know if I'll be hunting quite as much this year because I have an amazing, sweet, lovable little daughter this year uh, that uh, is just going to require some more time from me. Uh, But you can bet your bottom dollar that I will still be out there hunting quite a bit. So I'm excited for this upcoming season. I'm excited to get out there and do some bow hunting and then do some muzzleloader. And then uh, actually this year I probably won't be doing much rifle hunting because I'm going to be in Colorado on an elk hunt. Um, but I just can't wait guys. It's, it's here. Like I said at the beginning, we made it. So thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast, supporting this podcast. I can't thank you guys enough. If you want to hear about anything in particular, send me a message on social media. That's Oklahoma outdoors podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I've done a terrible job of checking Facebook lately, but I'm very active on Instagram. I've been getting a lot of messages from you guys, and I love it. I love interacting with you guys. So thank you once again from the bottom of my heart. I hope you all have a fantastic year. And uh, yeah, let's just get out there, have fun. And until next week, I will see you guys right back here on the Oklahoma Outdoors Podcast.